Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast. I am Jody Grunwald. This week, my guest is Dennis Miller, founder and chairman of DCM Associates, Inc. Dennis is a nationally recognized expert in nonprofit executive search, as well as board and leadership performance coaching. Dennis is the former president and CEO of Somerset Medical Center and Foundation. His reputation as a respected healthcare executive resulted in numerous honors. Dennis has a passion for helping the not-for-profit sector. In his words, not-for-profit organizations are the glue that keeps the community going. An expert in board governance, leadership development, philanthropy, and succession planning, he is a sought-after motivational speaker and retreat facilitator. Dennis grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, and although he shares he had a lot of fun as a child, he also talks about the trauma he experienced. His dad was both emotionally and physically abusive. Because of struggling in school academically and being the class clown, his teachers and parents would tell him that he was a failure. Using humor was a coping mechanism for him. At 20 years old, Dennis admitted himself to a psychiatric hospital due to feeling depressed and in need of support. A priest became a source of support and encouragement when Dennis left the facility. He finally had someone that believed in him. With his incredible spirit intact and the motivation to create a life he would be proud of, he went to college and started taking steps towards his incredible career path. Dennis is also the author of Moppin' Floors to CEO, From Hopelessness and Failure to Happiness and Success. To learn more about DCM Associates, Inc. and Dennis, go to DennisCMiller.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Today's the Day Changemakers YouTube channel, stream this podcast on all streaming sites, comment, like, and share, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Today is the Day Live It. The views expressed by all Today's the Day Changemakers podcast guests are their own. Their appearance on the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity that they represent. Have a great week, everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Today's the Day Changemakers podcast. I am Jody Grinwald, and as I say every single week, I get to interview the most incredible humans who are doing an unbelievable work in their corner of the world and beyond. And today I have Dennis Miller with me. Hi, Dennis. How are you? Jody, I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. I'm so I'm good. I'm good. I'm so happy to have you here with me too. We we know we've known each other for a bit, and it's so nice to finally have you on to uh, share more about yourself. And uh, I'm going to read a little bit about your bio, and then we're going to get into a conversation. Sound good? Absolutely. I'm all open. Go. All, all, go for it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So Dennis C. Miller is the founder and chairman of DCM. Uh, DCM Associates, Inc., a nationally recognized expert in nonprofit leadership, executive search, and board and leadership performance coaching with more than 35 years of experience working with nonprofit board leadership and chief executives across the country. He is a member of the Network of Nonprofit Search Consultants, a professional organization comprised of some of the leading nonprofit search consultants in the United States. He is an expert in board governance, leadership development, philanthropy, and succession planning. He is a sought-after motivational speaker, retreat facilitator, and leadership performance coach. Dennis, you've got a lot of stuff going on in your bio uh, here. It must have been written by my wife or something. I don't know about that. That sounds that sound familiar to me, Jody, you know? <laughs> I, think, I think there's a lot more in here, too, that, you know, a lot more that I didn't share. There are a couple other paragraphs I, I, did, I didn't share, but that, because I want us to have this conversation. 
Uh, you know, there's a lot that's gone on to get you to where you are today. Didn't just happen that way. So before we get to all of that, I do want to ask you my, my typical question, my opening question, which is always, where did you grow up? I grew up in Jersey City, uh, New Jersey, Hudson County. Um, and uh, it was one time when, you know, your aunts and uncles lived next door and your grandparents lived around the corner. And uh, I spent the first seven years of my life there. And uh, it was a very fond experience growing up there. I eventually moved to a town uh, called Carteret, which is in Middlesex County, New Jersey. And back then, um, you know, people thought I moved to the country. And uh, uh, I don't think anybody would think Carteret's a country, but it was, uh, you know, it was a big, big transition going from Jersey City to Carteret. And uh, as everybody knows in the, on the East Coast, what exit are you on? It was exit 12. And uh, I spent a lot of, uh, obviously, my growing years there until I eventually went to grad school and moved out. As a kid growing up, because you're very forward facing, right? You're out in the, you're out and about consistently now, but as a kid, were you like that as well? Or were you more of a shyer child? I, I, I don't shy. I had, um, you know, if I documented quite a bit, I was um, a friendly guy. I, I certainly, uh, you know, had, I didn't realize it until years later, you know, I suffered a lot of emotional trauma as a child and at the hands of my dad, who was a very, very talented man, but had, I learned later on, severe personality disorder, gender identity issues, and really emotional problems. And so, you know, it was, I mean, my mother would say, you have to get out of the backyard, boys, your father's coming home, he doesn't want you playing on the grass. And most parents want you playing on the grass versus the street. So it was a good time, but I was a social guy, and I really kind of, um, you know, was a funny guy, but I think I really, my humor was a, really masking the abuse and the trauma that I was experiencing. And I know that you've openly shared some of that in your book uh, called Mopping Floors to CEO, which we'll talk about as well. Um, and that is really tough, you know, you because you, you know, you don't realize it while it's happening that you're, you know, you don't know that the trauma is going to come with you throughout your life and how you'll, how you'll handle it, how it will manifest itself and how you'll, and how you'll get through it. So, to, you know, you know, you shared with us that get off the grass because dad's coming home. How do you feel as you were growing up that really played a huge role in your life before you realized that it was something you had to work through? Yeah, well, you know, when you're a kid, you don't realize what you are. You just think that's the way it is here. I do remember uh, a friend saying he was going on vacation with his parents. And I remember feeling sorry for him. I said, oh, you're going away with your parents. I feel like you're going to get beat. No. Um, listen, I had a lot of, you know, there was a lot of fun times in my childhood, but I, I certainly, um, you know, we played sports and had a lot of friends. We played in the street, you know, stickball and boxball and baseball and football and, you know, go past the Buick and come on back before the Buick and catch the pass kind of thing. And Little League and, you know, when I went to Carteret, it was like Little League teams on the field with real uniforms. It was a, it was a lot of fun here. Just that I had certainly difficulty academically in school, you know, um, focusing and, and attention and things like that. So it was, it was a challenge. And by the time I got to high school, even though I was a varsity football player, had the lead in the play, it was a social butterfly, I was a class clown, I was, you know, all those kind of things here. Um, but, you know, my academics were very poor and I, I, I struggled academically. Mm, yeah, so that's, that's, that's hard. But you went on from school, from, from high school to, to head where? 
Well, when I came out of high school, believe it or not, I got rejected by every college I applied to. My grades were very poor. I was on the, probably the bottom rank of my class here. So I did go to County College. I went to Middlesex County College because that mm -hmm. was the, you were allowed to, you had to go to County College or you could. And that was a great experience for me. Um, you know, it was during the Vietnam War. Uh, people recall it was very turmoil going on in the country here. Um, I did finish county college. I got into a couple four-year schools and, and I just was kind of really mixed up, Jody, emotionally, kind of where to go in my life. And um, by the time I was 20, I just became really distraught, anxious, depressed. I felt despondent. I just didn't really have any parenting. My, you know, my dad kind of hid in his room. My mom, who was a wonderful person, but she was also kind of abused and depressed and withdrawn because of the abuse of my dad. So my mom kind of was, even though she was a caring person, she was kind of, you know, in many ways I experienced her as kind of cold and rejecting. And so I kind of grew up alone. And eventually by the time I was 20, I self-admitted myself to a private psychiatric hospital just to get help. And um, that's where my life changed because I eventually, the priest from my parents named Father Gantley came to visit me and I was 20 years old at the time. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, this, this, this guy, he has such a calm demeanor and I wasn't used to men with calm demeanors, Jody. And um, I do remember he said, well, Dennis, you know, come see me when you get out. And I'm like, sure, Father, like a hole in the head. I'm like, I'm not gonna see you, Father. You know? And then one day, I went to a therapy session in New York and I became more dist distraught and I went to the rectory and rang the doorbell and I cried my eyes out. And the first time I trusted someone to respect and just opened up to someone and the first time I told them how bad my life was. And that was a big pivotal point, big turning point to feel that I, I had a connection. I had a relationship and, and he helped me for six months, just kind of get through a tough day to eventually got me into a day hospital program and it, it changed my life. What's so incredible, Dennis, is that you knew that something was wrong, right? You, you, you were really in it in that you were accepting of the fact that you needed help and not a lot of people know where to go and what to do. If there is someone right now listening to this podcast that doesn't have that answer, what, what advice would you give them? I, it's got to be a couple of things, Jody. Anybody listening, I would say reach out to anybody, a friend, a neighbor, a colleague at work, reach out to someone, you know, and just in case I didn't, I never told anybody, I kept the secret of my entire life. Actually, I kept the secret until I was 65 years old because that's, I didn't ever tell a friend or a colleague about my life story until I wrote my book, Mopping Towards the CEO. I would say reach out to just anybody in the family and just kind of, because you need a connection. You can't be on an island. It's just too brutal. And for me, you know, trying to grow up and trying to figure out how do you get to be 40, I really didn't even know. And I just was so alone, so anxious, and just didn't know how to cope that I went for help, but I was at the bottom of the barrel. There wasn't many places for me to go. It wasn't, you know, so I'm glad I did, but it was a tough spot. But certainly, you know, I, I, I bounced back pretty, pretty well. Yes, you did. You surely did. And I know that there's shame, right? So that's why you say 65 is when you you finally shared it. What do you what do you think that shame was about? Yeah, I can tell you what it was about. It was amazing that um, I felt ashamed um, that I needed help. I was so embarrassed, Jody, that I needed 
professional help, I needed a therapist. I never forget this one. I remember you know, being in therapy and saying to myself, okay, fine, but how, when is this going to end? And one day, um, here I am, president of a major medical center in New Jersey, going through psychoanalysis to kind of continue to deal with growth in my emotional life. My therapist said to me, Dennis, I'm in my 50s. He said, Dennis, you know, it's okay to need me. And I went like, it is? He said, yeah. He goes, you never had any parents. You never had any parenting. And I felt, Jody, so ashamed that I, I didn't want anybody to know that I was, I, here I am, an adult with, you know, successful job titles and blah, blah, blah. But I really was like a child, emotionally, really needing help and comfort. And he said, Dennis, it's okay to need me. And I said, it's, it is? He goes, yes. And I began to accept myself that it was okay. And it was just, it was a big opening. And I do remember this one day, um, we went on vacation. We used to go to Aruba. I, used, I love Aruba. Um, and we used to have a timeshare down there um, after years. And I remember being on the beach and, um, you know, but pre preparing to be on, on, on the vacation and, and enjoy myself. And I was like miserable. And I called my analyst and he said to me, Dennis, you know, it's okay. You, 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 he said, children who don't have a relationship with their parents identify with them. You identify your mother who was unhappy, but that's your way of loving her. Being unhappy is your way of loving her. So she doesn't feel alone. Your mother's not going to be hurt, Dennis, by you being happy. It was like, it's okay to be happy. Because yeah, I said, yay. And so it was like all these little things that I that I learned to do. And I was like, it's okay. I'm not going to hurt my mom. And I realized um, in spite of my big size and sometimes my big mouth, uh, I'm a very caring guy. And it was what I do in my work here. And it really, you know, my upbringing had a big bearing on my life. And it, it, it is a result of what I do now, giving back and helping people. But it was very difficult. And I just was embarrassed. I didn't want anybody to know I needed help. I didn't know any. And then I realized after a while, I said, you know what? I'm going to tell my story, Jody, because I think um, we all need help. And sometimes more than others. But I realized there's so many people go either going, currently going through a difficult time or went through a difficult time, don't know how to get past it. That I wanted, to, I wanted to inspire people that regardless of how difficult their life is or has been, uh, you can change your life. And that's what I was, I'm very fortunate I was able to do it. And so I'm happy. You know, and one of the things with the podcast that I've really wanted and has a been a message for me is that if we would stop judging others, then we could share our vulnerability. And when we share our vulnerability is what makes us feel connected and supported instead of ashamed and different. Yeah, and, and you know what's amazing? I never forget when I wrote the book, a book came out, and I always joke, I said, you know, Mrs. Fritz, my seventh grade English teacher, knew I wrote two sentences together correctly, she'd have a heart attack. If she knew that I wrote, you know, five books, she'd have a heart attack. Um, but when I wrote the book, Mop and Floors, um, I've had people all over the country that knew me or called me and tell me about their story. And it was like, it allowed them to open up. And I, I mean, it was, and you know, all people of all levels of life just it was, and I just, I just felt it was cathartic. I had to, wanted to write my story. I wanted to tell a story to help others. And now I tell everybody. So once I told the book, it's like I tell everybody, but 
uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a tough, uh, tough journey. Yeah. It's called Mopping Floors to CEO, an autobiography from hopelessness and failure to happiness and success. Where can people find that, that book? Well, you can go uh, as, as, on any online bookstore, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, uh, my publisher, Book Locker. Um, you know, it's available and, uh, you know, either hardcover, softcover, and um, uh, there's a, whatever it is with Barnes and Noble has the ebook, and Book Locker has the ebook. And, uh, I'm not sure why Amazon doesn't have the Kindle version, but it, it, it's available all over the place. That's great. That's great. Thank you for, for sharing that. So now I, I want to go back for one more second and just ask you, did you have something in your mind? As, I know you were going through a lot that you, what you wanted to be when you grew up. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Yeah. So in my high school yearbook, it said Dennis will coach a college football team that arose. Well, I thought I, I viewed myself as a college football. I was going to coach football. And um, I actually, in our high school, we had what they call a powder puff game where the, girl, the girls played each other. And, um, and uh, it was flag football. And I was the coach with my, my friend, Johnny Kondersky, Dr. John, Dr. Johnny K. And um, I had a ball with it. So yeah, I, I, was, I saw myself as a, as a football coach. Um, and, uh, you know, I was looked at by a bunch of colleges as a football player, but I, uh, and then once I saw my transcripts and my grades, I think they, uh, you know, looked for some other players here, but I, uh, yeah, I was, I was what I, I was my dream. I was going to college football. I was going to be a coach, football coach. Yeah. Amazing. What was the, what was the real first paying job then? Oh, I, I had a lot of jobs. I had a, a job. Uh, one of my first paying jobs was actually at the, um, it was like the AMP. I was a stock boy. Um, mm -hmm. I had a job at the luncheonette, of course, from the high school, but I, I had a job and I, it was funny. I had a job. It's called the dog house, but it was sold hot dogs. It said 10 different hot dogs and it was right off the exit by the turnpike, but it was like one hot dog, but like with chili was the Mexican, you know, with kraut it was the German hot dog, with the relish was something else here. It was like one hot dog, but I always worked. I was always a hustler selling, you know, greeting cards and things like that. But I always had, um, I've always, you know, I've always, I was a hard, always had jobs, always, always a hustle, always working, always working. You know, that's really interesting because depression and the things that you were talking about a lot of times can hold people back from getting off the couch and doing the things that that they, that you were doing, do you know, was it driving you because that way you would get out of the house or do you, was there another reason? No, I think I needed to work to have some money here. And, um, you know, back then, I even, I mean, when I eventually, when the depression got worse, obviously I went to the professional up in the hospital here and then I suffered for, I literally used to, for six months after I came out of the hospital, I would, ring the doorbell of the directory to see Father Gantley or throw pebbles out the window or sit in front of the church and I had to wait till he, he came back because I was I had no way to go through and eventually he got me into this day hospital program in Perth Amboy called the Raritan Bay Mental Health Center. And it was the first time I was 21. It was the summer of yeah 71. I remember first time in my life I felt I was with a group I felt cared for I had structure a place to go every day. And I never forget as I was sort of beginning some emotional healing, I developed a amazing appetite, a voracious appetite is what I wanted to read and to learn. So I, this was all pre-Kindle, you know, my days. This was, I went to the public library and devour books six or seven at a time, Jody, on 
great men and women of the world, religion, philosophy, education, events, just everything. I just devoured it and then realized, wow, the world is so much bigger and broader and wider than I thought it was. That's when I said, geez, I really want to, I want to do something, have an impact in my life. That's, that's kind of was the motive, motive between my becoming what I became. So was there a book that stood out amongst the rest while you were going through that? Absolutely. There's the, it's, uh, never forget it, called The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. Now, Eric Fromm was a German psychoanalyst, and it was an amazing book called The Art of Loving. And one of the things I really learned was that, you know, as you know, the, the, the time, you know, in the Bible says, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. But before you can love your neighbor, you have to be able to love yourself and respect yourself. They go, it's synonymous here. And I really uh, was not loving myself. I wasn't accepting myself. I kind of, you know, in many ways, just felt so rejected as a kid that um, I didn't. And so I had to begin to accept myself. And I accepted myself every time I learned something about myself and said, okay, I understand now why I did that or how I talked about that or why I did this, why I learned, understood it. And so once I began to accept myself, that allowed me to be loving and allowed me to love other people. And it dramatically changed my life and how I was able to have relationships with people. And at the end of the day, you know, relationships is, is what life's about. And that changed my life tremendously. That was a big, big factor. There's a lot of other life lessons I've learned I'd be happy to share about, but that was one of them that was really important. Yeah, you know, I really believe connection is truly everything. Everything I do is related to that, connecting to ourselves, connecting to others. And when you have a disconnect with a family member, parent who you trust, that really does lay the basis and foundation. So you have to rebuild that with yourself, like that connection and then, and build it from the beginning. Yeah, if, I mean, if you don't love yourself, you can't love your neighbor, um, you can't hate yourself and... Um... And I did. I, I was very, um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I was felt tremendously rejected by my parents and certainly my dad. Um, you know, I, I have two wonderful sons now and I'm very loving and I have a grandson who's the love of my life. And yeah, it's, listen, I, I forgive my father. I mean, I didn't have, you know, my dad didn't throw the baseball with me in the backyard and take me to games and I didn't have that relationship, but you know, but I, I, I moved on from it. I forgave him and he had difficulty with his parents and everybody else difficulty. One of the big lessons I've learned, Jody, in life was that to accept responsibility for yourself. I mean, you can go through life, you know, blaming your parents, blaming your teachers, blaming this, blaming that. But at some point, you got to accept responsibility for yourself to kind of, uh, you know, move forward in life in a more positive manner. And and that was, that was a tough lesson to learn, to realize, you know, Dennis, you can, you know, you know, but you got to accept yourself here and, and, you know, and take responsibility for yourself. You're, you know, you're an adult now. And that was a big lesson I learned, but that was a very important lesson learn to learn to accept responsibility for yourself and not blame other people for your failures. Oh, absolutely. Because we can get stuck in that, in that cycle and give oh. ourselves the excuse. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's easy. Um, you know, my teacher wasn't good and my parents weren't good and poor me, you know, victimhood, you know, and, um, mm -hmm got to accept responsibility for yourself and, and become uh, an adult and be responsible for doing something at, about your situation in a positive manner. And that, that also makes you feel good knowing you're taking care of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And you're setting an example for those who see you 
and, and, you know, and know that you're there and you're friends with people and your kids and, and all of that, you are, you know, people look up to you and they want to, you know, you're the example. And so if you're blaming everybody else, they're going to follow. So in this case, you're setting a, a great example. I mean, your story and the fact that you're sharing it, no matter what age is just so important because people need to hear these types of things because they need to feel connected too. Ham 10 is a leader in IT enterprise solutions and staffing. They are driven to transform their clients' business performances. They do this every day by providing their clients with the best services and products. Products like BizLego, an online community platform, and Colear, a unique learning management system. They also transform the lives of women and children through their associated nonprofits, SheTech, which supports women in and joining the technology field, and Softkin, support organization for kids in need. Pam 10 technology for social good. Go to pam10.com for more information. One thing I want to go back to, and I wrote down here, which is which really is going to stick with me personally from this, um, is it's okay to need me. And I think that that's a really important thing. It is okay to need to talk to someone else. It is okay to yeah. feel that way. And so thank you for normalizing that, because I think that's so important. Yeah, I, I'll never forget when you said it's okay to need me. And like, here I am, like 50-some years old. I was like, it is. It's okay. Because I was like, not. it was not okay to me. I was embarrassed. I mean, I would be terrified going to see my psychoanalyst and think that someone that I knew would be in the waiting room. I'd be, it was like a secret I kept. It was, you know what, really, it was, you talk about earlier, a shame. And and one of the things, the reason I wrote the book was I I was ashamed. I kept this a secret. I, I, it sort of reflected upon who I was. I really was, it was horrible feeling to feel, you know, ashamed that uh, I was abused. It was horrible. Yeah. Sometimes, and we blame it, a lot of times blame ourselves, right? I mean, when you're in those course, situations. Yeah, we, we do end up blaming ourselves and, and you know, and be punishing ourselves. So, but it's, it was very difficult. Yeah, it was, it was tough, very tough. How did it feel to write the book? And my my follow up will be: How did it feel to see it on a shelf? Uh, a couple of things. It, I, uh, I I I enjoyed writing the book. There was a couple of times during that period that I had to put it down. It was very difficult emotionally at some point talking about my family and things like that. It was very difficult. I had, you know, I mean, you know, like Christmas time is a usually a happy time for people in my house. I remember, I'll never forget, my father turned to my mother and said, when she gave him a gift, he said, if this is what I think it is, someone's going to get a punch in their mouth. I mean, what a painful, unbelievable experience it was. It was my father was brutally painful. It was horrible. Um, so when I wrote the book, it was cathartic. I, I really enjoyed And certainly, um, and I always, you know, joke, but I think that, you know, when I had my first book come out, I can't believe it. I, you know, I'm an author. I said, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, um, it's, um, it's, it's rewarding to know that I, I told my story. I'm proud of my story, if that's the right word used here. And I think it inspires other people. And that's why um, I do a lot of speaking and, and, and always open an invitation to be a you know, speaker at a conference or at a college or organization about, you know, life lessons of perseverance and determination of how to overcome open stuff, how to have success. So I'm proud to have written the book. I'm glad I did it. 
That's awesome. And and I'm sure it had to be incredible to see it on a shelf because that's always the next, always the next thing. Yes, it, it is. Um, it, it is cool to see it on a shelf. It's very cool to walk in some, someone's office and see they have my, my books on their shelf. <laughs> Oh, that's all. That's awesome. So Dennis, you said you, you were reading books and you saw that you wanted to make a difference and you, and you saw how much these books meant to you. So talk to us about your journey to nonprofit. Yeah, well, I, um, I was interested because I was just talking to my son about this. So, um, here I was, um, if you don't know, I was 24 years old and I uh, was thrown out of my house. Um, I lived in a YMCA and I took a job cleaning bathrooms out of Ramada Inn. And, 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 and Edison. And um, I eventually got a room in a boarding house. And I, you know, I was 24 years old, I believe. And I didn't go to my fifth high school and I was embarrassed. Was like, hey, Dennis, is that you clean the urinals? And so I, it was like a divine intervention. I, I, I finally had a conversation with myself. And I said, Dennis, you know, you may think you're going to be the next, you know, famous writer and author, but if you don't get an education, you're not going anywhere. And so I said, okay, how am I going to get education? Because I got rejected by schools. I, I, so I wrote to every college in New Jersey, uh, all the state schools and public schools. I get into both. So when I went to Rutgers and chose Rutgers, at the beginning, I thought I was going to be a physical therapist, Jody, because I was back then very athletically inclined. I think my ages would say I, I certainly wouldn't call myself athletically inclined today. Um, but I did the work for six months as a volunteer with that, my work here. And then through counseling and, and Myers-Briggs tests of interest about healthcare. And so I, um, you know, I just felt, I, I went into healthcare not at all thinking I'd be the president of some quarter billion dollar medical center. I went into healthcare thinking I want to give back and have people healthy and help other people. I remember having, one of my first jobs was at the Howard Johnson's on the Jersey Turnpike. That was my first job. I remember it now, and I was a busboy cleaning the tables. And I remember even waiting behind the counter and feeling sad for a father who came in and just could barely afford orange juice for a son here. So the nonprofit of helping other people was something that really made me feel connected and made me feel good. I wasn't just making widgets. And then I was again after a successful career. Well, a lot of ups and downs in the career. Nothing just was straight line here. I mean, I. You know, I lost my position at the age of 42 and, you know, at 54, I, you know, I, things happened at the hospital that decided it was time for me to, you know, kind of move on to something else here. Just was a, the idea of helping other people. I, I can't think of anything more important. And so, you know, running a hospital was great, but they're big businesses and they're big, big shifts. They move and change very, very slowly. But the idea of working with the organization that we do with, you know, behavioral health care and children's family services and social impact organizations like Make-A-Wish and Jewish Family Services and all those great organizations, they, they have an impact on people's lives today. And I do feel, Jody, that the nonprofit community is like the glue. The nonprofit sector is like the glue that keeps the community together. And to me... Uh, I've met, you know, so many colleagues and we have mutual friends together. Um, I'm just so proud of the people in it. I, it's just it's something I, I, I just enjoy being part of. Absolutely. What was the first nonprofit job you had? I'll never forget it. I, it was um, one of the first was an organization called, at the time, called Women's Crisis Services. Mm-hmm. And they are, they were in Huntington County, New Jersey. 
they dealt with domestic violence, sexual assault. And I remember, never forget this, uh, that board wanted a workshop on fundraising. So I said, okay, not governance, not leadership, not no, fundraising. I'll never forget this. And so the board chair owned the restaurant outside the Flemington Courthouse, if your listeners don't know, was famous for the Lindbergh baby case, Brewer Hoffman. And I remember asking the board, and I didn't know anybody on the board. Um, one board member, I think, worked for one of my board members. And I never forget, I asked them if they could tell me your top two achievements recently. And it was like dead silence. And the woman said, well, we did our budget on time. And I put a straight face. I'm like, that's not really much of an achievement. And another woman said, we only spend 6% of our money on fundraising. And I'm thinking to myself, it's going to be a long night. And finally, a woman in the back of the room says, we do a program that is called PALS, P-A-L-S. It's, I said, what is it? It stands for Peace, an Alternative Learning System. We treat children who've been subjected to sexual assault, domestic violence, so they can have a healthy relationship with surrogate parents, classmates, teachers, maybe biological parents, maybe the parents here. And I said, how do you communicate that to your stakeholders, internal and external? Go, well, we do better job in terms, but we don't do a good job outside. That's why you're not raising money. So that was fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they eventually, and I saw to them also, you know, you deal with children lots and that they changed their name, became SAFE, S-A-F-E, Capitalism Hunted, Stop Abuse for Everybody. My other client that I just spoke to, the former CEO yesterday, was an organization that's now called Embrace Kids Foundation, a very successful organization raising money to help families with kids with cancer when one parent's got to quit their job and everything. But that was many, many years ago, 15 plus, and they were called at the time the Institute for Children with Cancer and Blood Disorders. And they weren't sure what strategic direction to go with that. They go into research and everything else. And after I met them all, and I said to them, you know, you're not an institute. You know, institutes are, you know, the corner of New Brunswick, Philadelphia, New York, you know, research, education, provision of care. I said, you're a kids foundation. And they became, they changed the name and became a British Kids Foundation. So I, and I don't change a lot of names, but I've done that here. So, I mean, I now, I don't know, it's, few hundred organizations I've worked with around the country, but um, those were two that stuck out to me uh, really well, um, things like that. So uh, you started DCM, how long ago? Uh, and I started my, as a consultant in uh, my company in 2005. At, back then it was called Strategic Partners for Nonprofits, uh, LSE, which is pretty much me. And then um, Michelle Hickey joined me. And then in 2007, uh, we became Dennis C. C. Miller Associates, uh, which is the legal name. And and then again, it was just pretty much me, Michelle, until about uh, 2008. I had other colleagues at the time, associates. Um, But then uh, in 2018, you know, I brought on, you know, Joe Duffy, a friend for years. He was the former president of Catholic Charities. And then before you know it, uh, Greg Nielsen from Kentucky. And then Alan Weisberg, the former chief owner for J&J. And then Susan Hashman from the Ford Foundation. And Iman Stiles from the West Coast. And then, you know, Jim McQuirk from New York. And just, you know, keep building a team here. And so it's, um, you know, we've just grown tremendously. And we're still growing. We now have a you know, New York, New Jersey office. We have an office in the Southeast in Kentucky. We have an office in the West Coast. So uh, 
and we're opening up an office soon in Mount Wow. So we're just um, like dealt with that this morning. So uh, we've grown quite a bit, and uh, it's it's been it's amazing. It's a long run, wonderful run. It's in, it's incredible, you know, where your story started, where our conversation started. And I think that's what I love about stories like this is that for those who are out there who think they can't, they're not smart enough, they're not good enough, they don't have enough. There are people out there that can help you and there are people that have done it before you, you know, and that's what's, I think, so important. Do you want to add to that, Dennis? Yeah, listen, I, again, it goes back to, um, you know, I don't want to say that like loving yourself, but you have to, um, it's hard to love yourself when you're alone. It goes back to something you asked me earlier, Jody. I think we all need to feel we have a friend. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people in some pretty destructive relationships. Um, so having a mentor has a friend is really important here. But there's a couple other things too, though. You know, I tell people, you know, the, um, you just can't say, I want to change my life and think it's going to change by itself. You got to outwork everybody. You got to work hard. There's no easy, there's no black magic pill here. Okay. One of the things that I had to learn was that, you know, depression wasn't a, uh, wasn't a character flaw. It was a result of life trauma, loss, and biochemical issues in the brain. And that I had to learn, even though I didn't feel that way, that asking for help with depression and anxiety is actually a sign of strength and health, not weakness. That's right. So that was, and then it was very treatable here. I think clearly I had to learn also uh, the importance of emotional intelligence. Now I, I joke a lot with people, it's a truly, I, my IQ is not high, I, I can guarantee you that. And the reason I know that is because if I watch Jeopardy with my wife, she can kick my button. I don't know how they get these answers, if it's not U.S. cities or sports, I have no idea what they're talking about here. But I did know that emotional life, uh, emotional intelligence is really was the key to my personal growth and happiness. And it uh, enabled me to build strong relationships with people, success at work, achieve career success and personal goals. And here's something that I've learned too, is that I've met a lot of successful people who are not happy, but I really have met a happy person who's not successful. And so happiness is, 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 a, is a goal and what will make you happy. And usually making happy is have a connection with someone. I did learn, this was a lesson. I remember when I realized all of a sudden, you know, I was, I used to be, you know, I was Mr. Miller for years and I was the pre Mr. He's the president. And then, you know, you start to change your life and you realize, you know, it's not your title anymore. So it's like, who am I? And I don't know if it's true, but, you know, I think sometimes men more identify with their title than women do. Um, I, I think that's, I've had that experience anyway, but I realized who I was wasn't, you know, based upon my wealth or the size of my home and all those things and had big homes and, you know, made a lot of money. But it was really, how did I, how was I treating my wife and my kids, my friends and my neighbors? How was I treating people? How was, how was I as a person? And I realized that is how I began to measure myself. And that became important. A few other things that, you know, here was a kid that, you know, you know, if I got a D on a test in school, it was like an accomplishment. And so when I went back to school, you know, it was a small incremental, small achievements of passing a test that 
built up, my self-confidence to take the next one and just and keep going from there. Um, so those things like that. And also, so that was a big lesson to learn about my self-worth, about self-confidence, about emotional intelligence here. And really never, um, never giving up the big difference I've learned between successful people and unsuccessful people isn't intelligence. It's not financial resources, it's not even opportunity. It's the belief that you can make your goals happen. And that is what did it for me. I went from a guy with like no confidence, no nothing, you know, couldn't do a test in school, failed everything, constantly told by my father I was a failure. Just, you know, and the teachers told me I was a failure. I mean, I literally in seventh grade had my teacher make me carry my desk and books in a Catholic school down to the supply closet, of course, from the, the head nun who put me into the supply closet and said, okay, smart out, teach yourself. Now, I'm sure it was a handful of, of, you know, talking out loud and not paying attention because of the trauma in my life. And then when a, the secretary walked into the room, of, it was secretaries back then, and, you know, she put the light on and she's just a little skinny kid. I was skinny at the time. So what the hell is this guy doing here? But I learned as I, as I went through life and got the professional help I needed, and there's no way on this earth I could have achieved anything without getting the professional help I needed. I didn't have it. And so all those things about believe you can make it happen. So today, you know, I believe I can make anything happen. And, and I say to the other people here, so just quickly, I won't say to the client, we're doing a search for a CEO. And I asked the current COO, was she planning to apply for the job? And she said, no. Now, normally, we'd just let it go. You don't have to be the CEO. It's fine. But as my colleague and I spoke to her, I, I, I detected that the reason she wasn't throwing her hat in the ring, she didn't have the confidence. Mm. And I realized, too, for a lot of young people and for a lot of women, particularly African-American women, women of the, you know, disadvantaged communities, et cetera, didn't have that. And we had a chat with her. And I'm so happy she's throwing her hat in the ring. And she got a great chance of getting a job. And so confidence is crucial. So I've just learned so much over the years and I hope in my work that I do can impart these life lessons to everybody else that you can be happy. That was so well said. That, thank you. That was, that was incredible. And I am with you in my belief that if one person believes in you more than you can believe in yourself in that moment, because you don't have it, it can launch you. It's helped me. It, honestly, in almost every aspect of my life, when I wasn't in belief of myself, somebody else came along, held my hand and said, you got this. Somehow I got to the other side. Well, I so gotta, I, I got, I'm sorry. I got to say this because my wife will always ask me, did you mention the G? So let me tell you this. The, the person who's had the biggest influence in my life is my wife, Gladys. Now we've been married 41 years, but let me give you a little background. So we call yes. her G-Lo. And people ask me, how did you call her Gilo? So my oldest son, when he about 20 years ago, when he was a teenager, was a very successful songwriter, lead guitarist for a punk rock band called Census Veil. Vale. They toured the world. They were on Jimmy Kimmel, Conan O'Brien, they were all over the place. And so he came back from a party one day that his publicist invited him to and said, Mom, I met you know J-Lo's mother and J-Lo's sister, and they're from the Bronx, and you're from the Bronx, Mom. So I said, well, you know, um, they got J-Lo, we got G-Lo. 
And she says, don't call me Gilo. I don't like that name. Well, it's stuck. So my wife has been, um, there's no doubt about it, it's been the biggest thing in my life to have someone that became my best friend um, I can talk to. And, and trust me, she's, she's very comfortable being right in my face and tell me what I need to do different. You know, she's good at that, you know? <laughs> um, and so um, I don't think I would have achieved any level of, of happiness without knowing I had her in my life. And I want to make sure everybody knows that it's very important to me. So that relationship is crucial. I mean, 41 years is a long time, you know? And, um, um, you know, we, uh, we, we met and um, it's interesting. I met her and got engaged in three months and married in six months. Sometimes it works that way. It, sometimes when it's quick, it works out great. Other times, it all depends. You you were yeah, very lucky. Me I was rushing it. I was pushing it. My mother, it's just going too fast. I'm like, sit back, mom. I got this one. You know, it's <laughs> like I got this. One. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I I'm I'm so happy to hear that that worked out and that you've got you've had people along the way that have believed in you so that you moved forward and the work that you're doing is incredible. But I, I have to ask you this question before we go. I just have a few more questions and I think it's important because of the nonprofit work that you do. There's nonprofits out there right now, small, large, mid-size advice that you have for them in this day and age when there are so many challenges and I'm sure there's tons of advice, but what's the one thing that you could share that you think could help someone? Number one, they need to be able to articulate and communicate the positive impact they're having for those they serve. It's not enough to exist. It's not enough to tell people your size, how many programs. You need to communicate the impact you're having on people's lives. And the more you can have those you serve tell your story to their eyes, the better off you are, whether they're telling the story through your website, through your gallus here, but it is crucial. I can't tell you how many people just, they tell me we got eight programs, you know, we got locations, we do this, we do that. But it doesn't mean anything. Tell me the impact you're having and have a child, having a mom, a father, family, somebody tell, tell about the impact that your organization has had upon you. That to me is, 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 is crucial. Number two, I would tell you that Along the line, everybody's certainly seeking, you know, dollars and donors and uh, and philanthropy. But yes, people give the number one reason they give because they've been, someone asked them. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I pray to God a lot, but you got to ask someone. Yes, they give to someone they trust, respect, and yes, they want to make a difference in the world, the community. But there's two things that's vital to know in the world of philanthropy for nonprofits: people give to success, not to distress. So. Go back to that story I told you when I asked the client about what their top two achievements were, and they told me their budget and this and that. And I, but then they told me they do a program called PALS. And I said, that's what an impact you got to communicate the impact you're having and not be bashful about that. The other thing is that people give to needs of those you serve, not your organizational needs. I think the other thing too is, um, is, is, is for nonprofit leadership is to, um, it's a phenomenal opportunity to be a thought leader, to have an impact upon your community directly here. And so those are some of the things that I think is important. And also, more importantly too, that you know, it's required in, in most states, but in New Jersey, it's required to, for people on the Board of Education get board training. There's no real requirement for people who serve, the millions of people who serve on nonprofit boards to get any training here. 
you got to have a training program for nonprofits so they feel, understand the role they want them to play, the responsibility, the expectations. And so it moves away from just all in favor, say, I that you can engage them. And one last thing I would tell everybody to do, I have what's called a 50% rule, Judy, 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 had three Judy's. Judy, three things is that every board meeting, have a prepared question that you're gonna engage the entire board and leadership team in on something like this. Yes, we're gonna have our committee reports. Yes, we're gonna give our CO update. Yes, we're gonna talk about our gal, whatever here. But have a question, something like this. Okay, today we're gonna to talk about what is the impact we're having in our community? What is the value we're providing to our community? What's our image in the community? Have the discussions and make sure that everybody is engaged in a conversation here. You want the board to feel connected to you, not just sitting in the room all in favor say I here. And I think people, that would be my advice to the nonprofits is, is the most, is tell your story, uh, communicate the impact, um, and engage, engage people in your organization. That's what I think. You know, it's, I, I love what you just said, because I have sat in many a board meeting and a lot of times it's like, okay, you ask the question, so who do you know who could, and everybody gets quiet. You know, it's, I love what you say. It's like, ask everybody, so how do you feel we're making an impact? What do you see us as in the community? And and get that feedback from them individually, I think is is so important. And here's something else. Here's something else. So I, I, in my, one of my books, I wrote about a you know, typical day in the life of the development committee. So like the day in the life that the Beatles wrote. And I said, okay, the chair of the development starts off, talks about, you know, who, who we're going to honor at our gala. And then everybody's, well, we honored him last year, his wife last year, and who we're going to honor. Who's going to chair our golf outing? Can we make any money on our on our wine tasting event? And then, okay, uh, everybody was asked to give the list of prospects for major gifts. Has anybody submitted anybody? It gets really quiet. And you wonder why. And so we need to move away. And But understand, it is painful. Uh, even if you're the president of the bank or the head of sales of a big company, it doesn't mean you understand fundraising. And it's very uncomfortable for most people. So here's what I tell people. I don't want my board members asking people for money. I want them to do, commit to me this. Would you, and giving you minimum of three, five would be great, but three people, individuals, a family, a company, or a foundation, three people, or any, any three three organizations that you will help me cultivate a relationship with in a year. Don't ask okay. for any money. Just help me introduce introduction, get that. If you have that and you've got 10 people on the board, now your development officer has 30 potential names. That's what I want to, and don't want you asking for money because most board members will ask for too little and, uh, or accept too little. And, and it's, and the biggest, mm -hmm fear people have as well. If I ask them, they might ask me and I want to give. And don't ask, don't make it a transaction. If you believe in your mission, you believe in the work, you believe in the impact, it's not personal. It's about asking, asking people to invest in your success is the best advice I can give everybody. Ask about investing in your success. Is this something you think you can invest in? And that's what I would tell the people all the time. It works. It does. It does work. And that is great because you should always have your top 50 list of who you'd like to meet and then see who knows them in the room and they just have to make the connection. I totally agree with you 100%. It's that simple. It doesn't have to be that very difficult. 
Uh, last two questions. One is with people, you see a lot of resumes. They come through your desk consistently. You have, you know, you're um, a consultant to help people find executives in 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 major roles for nonprofit, large large or small nonprofit organizations. In the resumes, what are you looking for? Is there something because right now we've got a lot of openings. So yeah. if they're going to put things in that resume, what should it be? Yeah, two things. I want them very succinctly to put their, you know, some of the key strategic achievements they have and a, a, a real quick one paragraph profile of their things of, as being a leader, communicator, things like that. I want them, you know, to have where they can quantify things. Um, I like a combination of a chronological resume that says, you know, in 2008 and 2014 and 2018 and 2021, these are my jobs. But I like some functional aspects of not just don't fill it in with all the things you're responsible for. Talk about the things that you've achieved and the difference you've made. That's important to me. And, and, and clearly your name and, and, and the contact information, the phone number and email address. Make sure it's very clear. Make sure there's no typos. It's really important. If someone sees a, a resume full of typos, they just they think that's what you're going to look at. So that's that's important for that kind of resume. And I I I I'll never forget I had a woman so it was just she so succinctly two pages or less, not. 12 pages, six pages, three pages, two pages, please, or less, period. Exactly. Now, that sounds good and not too hard. Definitely not too hard. So, Dennis, you've done such incredible work and you're continuing to do amazing work. You're, you're growing, and, you know, which is, is amazing in, in the amount of areas that you're covering, covering and people you're working with. But what is the footprint you're creating right now that you want to leave behind? Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good question. I'm you know, I haven't really thought about that, Joey, honestly, about what I'm behind, because I still enjoy what I do here, but I think it, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, if there was something I wanted to leave behind was um, that I, that I care, and caring is important, and caring makes a difference in the world. We look at what's going on these days in the world with, you know, Ukraine and Russia, it's just heartbreaking. I think Everybody needs a helping hand. I think caring. So what I leave behind is that um, caring for others uh, is, a, is a phenomenal experience and makes the world a better place, makes people a better life. And at the end of the day, it's just it be caring. Is and I hope that people say, you know what, he cares. That's at the end of the day. I said that I hope Dennis cared. He was a caring guy. That's what I hope people say. Well, we can, I think I think you're ready there with that. We can we can totally feel that in, in all that you share today. I, I so appreciate you sharing your vulnerability and and your story. Where can people find you who want to work with you or have you speak? Go out and speak. Yeah, yeah well, uh, two ways. I mean, we have um, you know DennisCMiller.com. You can find me DennisCMiller.com or DCM-Associates.com. And my paid speaking business is MoppinFloorsToCEO.com. But just, you know, go to either one of the websites. Uh, best thing is, is to call me, 201-956-1810. Uh, happy to be a speaker uh, all over the country. And, but, uh, you know, get a hold of me through that. And we'll, we'll, we'll be right. We'll, and, you know, my email is the same thing, dennis at dcmassociates.com or dennis at moppinfloors.co.com, either one. Wow. Well, they have a lot of ways they can get to you that nobody can say that they don't know how to get to you now. That's awesome. Absolutely. Thank you. So um, I'm ready. Just, just Google. But here's what you got to do. You got to use my middle initial C. So if you Google me on LinkedIn, Dennis C. Miller, 
Uh, I get asked a lot, as you can imagine, are you the, are you the, the, the real Dennis Miller? And I tell people, hey, I'm, I am funny to them. I am funny to them. You are funny. I played football. He only did it on Monday night, but he didn't, he didn't play the game. And I'm a little older than him, so I think his mother gave him my name. So I am the original. So it's Dennis, <laughs> Dennis C. Miller, and I'm available on LinkedIn. And reach out to me on LinkedIn. And, and anything like that, get a hold of me any way you want. Oh, thank you. Dennis, I really appreciated your time today. I hope you'll come back. You know, we can, I'm sure there's so many things we didn't cover. Jody, I'd love to come back. I thank you for the opportunity and I uh, appreciate everything that you do with Changemakers and all the work you do uh, with NJBIA and all my good friends there and particularly uh, our mutual friend, Sir Fred, Fred Wasiak and all that stuff here. Uh, I love Fred and uh, I'm happy to do anything with you and all the, all the people at NJBIA and Changemakers. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Fred. Fred is our mutual friend and uh, he's he's very beloved in the community. So uh, a nice shout out to him. And Dennis, again, thank you so much for everything that you do. We'll have you back on again. Everybody, please check out. Um, it is, I just want to get this right. It's Moppin' Floors to CEO. I should have remembered that easy. That's very easy. Moppin' yeah, Floors Moppin, to CEO. M-O-P-P-I-N apostrophe. It's no G. M-O-P-P-I-N apostrophe. Moppin' Floors to CEO. Uh, I think that I've had a lot of people obviously bought me the book and a lot of people told me they can't put it down. Read, read, reads like a thriller. And at the same time, it has a lot of funny aspects to it too. So I think they'll enjoy it. And I'm sure we will. And it'll wind up in the behind me. All of my, my guests who have uh, books go behind me. So I'm going to have to need a much bigger shelf. So Dennis, thank you so, so much. And I'm going to say what I always say at the end of every podcast. Today is the day. You cannot go back to yesterday and you do not yet own tomorrow. So what small or large step are you going to take today to get yourself closer to your goal? Dennis C. Miller, have a great day. I'm so glad that you could be a part of today's uh, podcast and have a great week, everyone. Bye, Dennis. Thank you, Joanne. I appreciate it.